Space, the final frontier. Film number four, Star Trek The Voyage Home. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to the next episode in our Star Trek film series. Idea courtesy of Darren. Thank you, Darren. Which will be discussed with the usual team of Graham, Neil, and, of course, myself. Hi, Darren. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Boldly going only out for necessities. (laughs) (laughs) And that way, you'll live long and prosper. Exactly. Hello, this is Jeff from the At The Flicks team with an announcement before we start the show. In partnership with the upcoming online Cheltenham International Film Festival, which runs from the 24th of May to the 5th of June 2021, we have a special offer for you. 25% of any film you select to watch from the festival. That's right, a 25% discount. Thanks to Leslie Sheldon, the festival director. With a film selection from all around the world, there is something here for everyone. To take advantage of this generous offer, go to cheltfilm.com and select the film list for the 2021 festival. When you select a film, add the code ATF25 to get your 25% off the viewing price. As an added bonus, if you book before midnight on the 23rd of May, there are early bird discounts you can also apply. This discount applies to UK residents only, as the festival cannot be accessed outside of Great Britain. So, to repeat, use the ATF25 code and get the 25% off your ticket price. And now time to start the latest from your At The Flicks team. So we've now reached Star Trek Four, or as it's better known, the one with the whales. In reality, this is the last of the mid-budgeted adventures which started with Star Trek Two and completes the three-art story. So after two films based around the Genesis project with over-the-top villains, this is a very different feature from returning director Leonard Nimoy as the crew go back in time to retrieve whales to help save the feature. Now, I always knew we would be instrumental in saving the world, but I still can't understand why Wales is spelt incorrectly. There's no H, lads. Anyway, (laughs) this is a very different film to end the series within the series. So my first question to you, and I'll start with Darren, does this different approach to the series work? Yeah, I think it does. Um, And I think after a trilogy, well, three films before this, where you've got really heavy... Uh, subjects and you've got sort of death and destruction you've got you know characters dying I think a bit of lightheartedness was maybe what was needed and I think this is one of the things about sagas and franchises you tend to get particularly ones which are taken from a tv property is a lot of the time the tendency is to basically go we're on a film so we've got to go bigger and darker and more epic and raise the stakes this one goes simpler and it goes more for fun and lightheartedness. And I think that is really, really uh, refreshing. The concept of it works tremendously well by having the crew from the 21st century coming into the 20th century and being fishes out of water on, on so many 
levels. I think because of their ages, it had started to get a little bit ridiculous having them as action heroes. So going for a more comedy thing, I think, was probably more acceptable to a wider audience. So it's a lot of fun. It's refreshing. Um, We get to see beloved characters, you know, spreading their acting chops a little and and going in a different direction. So for for me, it's one of the highlights of the whole Star Trek um, movie franchise. Graham, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I loved it. It's it's probably the most fun of the Star Trek movies um, with a plot that hovers uh, on the edge of absurdity. I mean, the, the basic plot is, yeah, we'll just pop back to the 20th century, pick up some whales, come back here and let them talk to an alien probe. Yeah, what could go wrong? It is complete and utter laughs and fun from from the basically from the start. You know, they start out as outlaws. You know, they've got a Klingon ship. They're being hunted down by the Federation. It it just rattles along. It might be two hours long, but it doesn't feel like it because you're just so engaged and it's so comical. Great fun, Neil. Don't actually like these films, but um, generally, I'm mean, Roth of the Khan was good. I don't think but... you like any film, Neil, but <laughs> no, especially <laughs> and, ones and, in English. But this one I I enjoyed despite myself. The comedy really did work. Seeing um, Spock headband on and and McCoy doing advanced medicine and etc. It worked very well. Yes, I mean for me, I think the key word that's come out here in this initial opening is fun. Mm. And it takes that central humour that was in the TV series, more so than the films that preceded it, and put it front and centre in this film. So you're enjoying these characters as they go back in time. You're laughing with them and not at them. And I think that's the important thing. And it has an important central message, which we'll get on and talk about. But it is great fun. And to be honest, these days, if you can find something that cheers you up, <laughs> this works more better than most. And so we all liked it. But one thing about this film, and particularly at the time I remember very well, is it touched a nerve with the general public. It was a huge box office hit, far exceeded what they expected and certainly far exceeded what the other films had done. It went beyond the Star Trek fan base and reached out into the general public, both in America, where it opened in Christmas 1986, and with us when it opened in Easter 1987. So why do you think it connected beyond that Star Trek fan base? Graham? I think it was very accessible. It wasn't set on alien planets. Uh, The aliens in this film are the people of the 1980s. And in fact, when I was watching it, my wife came in and she looked at the screen and she went, are they back on Earth in our time? Just by glancing at it, she'd immediately got the entire concept of it. Yeah, it's it's Star Trek comes back into our time. And what do these people from the future think of us? And what are they trying to do? It was very accessible for the general public. The Trekkies are going to go anyway, but they picked up a lot of additional traffic from ordinary members of the public who went along and had a good time because they got all the jokes just like everybody else. There was there was no sort of barrier to entry to this film. You didn't have to know all the Star Trek canon. You could just drop straight in. So, yeah, I think it just connected with everybody because it was set in our time and most people at that time knew the character of Spock and knew the character of Kirk and those sorts of things. So it was very easy to get into. Darren? I remember back in the day, the way that films used to get promoted is they would show a clip 
on like talk shows and like sort of entertainment shows, just just a, just a small clip that would do the rounds. And the one they always showed for this one was the scene on the bus where the punk rocker has got the um, the ghetto blaster and he, he won't turn the music down. So Spock gives him the nerve pinch and knocks him out. And it's a, a really funny scene. I think that scene got around and people sort of realised that this was going to be a bit different. This was going to be fun. This was going to be a comedy show. And this was because of the premise that they that they go into the 20th century. I think that sort of nerdiness that people basically get put off by um, sci-fi, uh, unless it's something big like, say, a, you know, a Star Wars. I think people realise that, you know, this is a little bit of a send-up. This is having a laugh. And I think that sort of like, you know, cult people wouldn't normally go to a Star Trek film if it was all sort of spaceships and aliens, you know, went along to this. And I think that, that it came out at the perfect time as well because the 80s was a great decade for comedy. I mean, you had a, a lot of the Saturday Night Live people who all were doing comedy and, you know, the National Lampoons and stuff. So, and even like, what you would call mainstream action films like Ghostbusters and The Raids of the Lost Art, you know, a lot of humour in there. It basically fitted in perfectly with what audiences wanted at the time when, when they went to the cinema. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and I particularly appreciate how do we get to see images from the film. And I remember the first time I saw the trailer was on a TV show, Jonathan King's Entertainment USA. I wonder whatever happened to him. <laughs> um, Neil, what about you? How did this connect with the general public? Exactly as the guy said, even the science fiction was simplified. Yes, you go really fast and you'll go back in time, and you go fast and you'll go back uh, forward in time. Uh, There's nothing that complicated. Well, people were starting to laugh at Trekkies and people were starting to laugh at the at the fat guys walking around in the uh, first three films and uh, trying to do action heroes in space. They took the mickey out themselves, and it so worked. Darren said the trailer was the uh, great scene on the bus with the uh, ghetto blaster. Fantastic. So that's interesting. So we've we've looked at the impact of the film when it came out and our thoughts on it now, but let's go right back and look at how this film developed. Now, like all films in development, a lot of initial ideas were dropped, including, as I found out, Thanks to Darren, some intriguing casting ideas. So, Darren, what's the story behind the initial ideas and setup of this film? The initial pitch for this film was to have the um, the trial of Captain Kirk, because if you remember in Star Trek Three, he basically went renegade and um, you know stole the Enterprise, and so this was going to be sort of him on trial. And the um, one of the ideas was that uh, we we're going to bring back some characters from the original series to be on like the. Um, as witnesses, um, the, the guy who played Harry Mudd, who appeared in a couple of episodes, was was approached for this. This got turned down quite early, and and um, Leonard Nimoy basically had also had a lot more creative control on this film as he did the last one. He wanted to make this a more light-hearted one, but he also wanted to bring in an environmental message. Now, his first idea was that there was going to be a virus in the 23rd century that the crew had to go back in time to find the cure for. Yeah, imagine such a ridiculous thing. Well, nobody would understand virus, would they? Well, that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that that would be uh, an idea. But if he, he felt that this was kind of would take it a lot darker than he wanted the, the premise to go, so he came up with the idea of ma- making this a more positive environmental film and actually sort of saving a species 
uh, from the past that have gone extinct. And obviously, the, the one species that everyone in the 80s was, was concerned about was, was the, the whales. And so he came up with the idea of basically having a reason to go back and bring some whales to the 21st century. And this was something that Shatner was really into because he'd done a lot of charity work, apparently, with certain um, groups. And one of the things he'd done was a um, there's a point that he reads towards the end of the film. And he before Star Trek, he'd actually done some uh, uh, live performances, as, as he was wont to do, if you ever want to look those up on YouTube. They're quite hilarious. Where he read that poem out. So he, he was on board with When they actually decided to go the comedy route, one of the things that we actually had an idea for was to uh, get Eddie Murphy in as a um, as a guest role. Uh, Eddie Murphy apparently was a, a big Star Trek fan. If you've ever seen some of his um, stand-up from the 80s, he did actually used to do a whole routine about Star, uh, Star Trek. And the, the idea seems to be that he would have been someone in the 20th century who was um, possibly an eccentric scientist who believed in UFOs, and obviously he comes into contact with the crew. Things broke down. Apparently, Murphy was more interested in actually playing a crew member in, in the future. And he wasn't too, too, too keen on the role that he had. So eventually, things broke down. And he decided instead to, to go and do The Golden Child, which he'd been more the, the star of. And the role that he had, they basically sort of worked into um, the, uh, the Catherine Hicks characters, the marine biologist. I've got to say, I, I really do think that they dodged a bullet on this one. Um, Eddie Murphy at that time was a massive, massive star. And I think that he would have brought in a, a new audience. Unfortunately, I think he is at the time what you ex would expect to see from Eddie Murphy because he, he would always do his shtick. I think that would have over overwhelmed the film. And, and I think it would have sort of... The best analogy I can think of is that if you ever saw uh, Superman 3 where Richard Pryor came in, and it'd be, that film is basically a Richard Pryor story. I think that's what the way it could have gone. And if you see that, that, that like I said, Superman, Superman pretty much becomes a cameo in his own film in that one. So I think that could have gone that way. You've also got um, Eddie Murphy being the, 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 the personality that he is. I, there's always a possibility he would have clashed with someone like Shatner who wouldn't, would not have wanted to take second place in his own movie. So I, I really think that... I, I think there would have been more than a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eddie Murphy would have probably made this a sort of it, it would not have been as as work as well. And I think as it happens, they didn't need a, a, a big star comedian because they, they took to the comedy aspects of this so well. I don't think that was needed. But it's it is an interesting how that is the, the direction at one point that they they were going in. Well then, you're just going to have to take your best shot. Best shot. Yes, Spark. Your best guess. Guessing is not in my nature, Doctor. Well, nobody's perfect. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. And the, the Superman 3 analogy also throws up another warning. You're quite right. It became the Richard Pryor show. But Richard Pryor was muted. It wasn't the Richard Pryor that we know of, this great comic, irreverent comedian. It was somebody who had been sort of like tamed for a more general audience. Now, if they brought in Eddie Murphy and had him play in Reggie Hammond from 48 Hours, I would definitely have watched that. <laughs> I don't think they'd got the family audience. No. no. So Leonard Nimoy had the idea. He created the story. And then he got involved with two sets of scriptwriters. And yet again, with Star Trek, I do find this fascinating. 
and I've seen this pretty much in every film that we've gone through now, they start off with writers who were either TV writers or first-time writers. And this time they had a double act of Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes, who most famously went on to write Double Impact with Jean-Claude Van Damme, one of Neil's heroes. Um, <laughs> and then, so they had their idea, but then they sort of glossed it with Half Bennett and Nicholas Meyer working together, not always favorably, as we'll come and talk about that later on. But, you know, they, they had the law. They had been with this in Star Trek too, So they, you know, took the edges off it, I suppose, and made it more Star Trek-y. I think we'll talk about that. But did that approach work? Do you think they got the script right, uh, Neil? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it rattles through. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's very much Leonard Nimoy's film, isn't it? He's obviously got other people involved. But yes, I think the approach did work. I think he does make Kirk look a bit silly sometimes, but uh, and obviously ended, ended up pushing him into the water. But yeah, I think it did. Okay. Graham. Yeah, yeah, it's a comedy script. So, and it's very funny. So, yeah, it worked and and they were excellent writing team and certainly the, this approach worked. I, and I'd love to find out why they got rid of the first two. Well, uh, the no, they did. They just kept this. They had this script and they layered onto it. I I think they brought in these people and then Bennett and Meyer sort of added the Star Trek uh, elements that they'd built up over the last couple of films into. Ah, uh, okay. Right. Okay. Oh, so, I see. Yeah. No, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it certainly works. There's, there weren't many Star Trek elements. There was a bit at the beginning, and we'll come on to talk about the ending. But yeah, as a comedy vehicle, it worked well. And then they put some. They just layered some light Star Trek moments in there, uh, and the continuity with the last film. So they carried on from the last film. So yeah, it all worked well. Okay, Darren, what do you think of the writing uh, double team on this? Uh, I think the, the one consistent that we've found in, in all of these films that we've covered so far is that the, the creative flow process in this is always massively fluid. There's, this this stories get passed around from, from writer to writer. And, um, I think at, at the end of the day, you just got to go with what is it that you'll get at the end of it. You know, that's what you judge it on. And I think in this one, whatever they did, whoever contributed, what worked. Did a really good job, I think, of having the time travel aspect, but not going too far into it to make it sort of, you know, complicated. It was just a very simple. We'll go around the sun, and we've done this before. You know, I, I think that that worked. Yeah, I think it's great. I think I think one thing when you come to the script, though, that you've got to realise is quite a lot of scenes which were quite ablived. We'll probably come to those a little bit later, but there was quite, a, you know, quite a lot of times, you know, particularly uh, Nimoy and Shatner in the um, in the car. A lot of that scene, they were basically just doing on the fly off each other. So, uh, you know, I, I think the the cast themselves were trusted to have the, to you know to bring the voice of their characters into this. The, st- the story makes sense. It's very simplified, and it's and it's, and it's as we keep saying, it's um, it's very accessible to to when to both sort of Star Trek fans and non Star Trek fans. But can I just pick up on that ad lib? The scene with Chekhov looking to find the nu- nuclear vessels uh, that. A lot of that was ad-libbed, wasn't it? Because I know the woman who spoke at the end wasn't supposed to speak at all. What actually happened with that is that the, um, they got some extras that basically just to sort of come on and they were just going to be sort of like doing the ask, asking for directions. And apparently that lady, 
when she went away, she got a parking ticket while she was waiting for the filming to start. And she asked if she could say something because then they'd give her a little bit of a, a, a bigger fee and she'd be able to pay off a parking ticket. So they basically just said to her, they didn't give her, tell her what to say, they just say, just respond to whatever they ask you. So when Chekhov asked her, um, what's the way to Alamina, she didn't know what to say. So she just sort of, so she just basically um, pretty much repeated what he said. She said, oh, the nuclear vessels, I think they're in Alamita. And that, so when Chekhov actually turns around and says, yes, that is what I said, Alamita, he's ablibbing off her as well. So that whole little thing where he's basically, you know, that was just total ablib. So that, you know. Hello, we are looking for the nuclear vessels in Alameda. Could you tell me where... Can you could help you, us? Please, we're looking for the naval base in Alameda. Could you tell me where the nuclear vessels are? No. Ooh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think it's across the bay, in Alameda. That's what I said, Alameda. Alameda. I, know that. I thought that was really funny. Where's the Alameda ba- um, naval base? It's in Alameda. <laughs> <laughs> I never really thought of Kirk and Spock as an improv comedy duo. <laughs> <laughs> well, when when you think about it, it does actually make sense because by this time, all, all, the, all the Star Trek um, crew, they were all on the uh, convention circuit. We're doing questions and answers and everything. Ah, so we're course. probably yes. um, getting into that mindset almost of a stand-up comedian, having to uh, think, think, you know, think and come up with interesting anecdotes to stories over time. So so we're probably quite well-versed in actually doing stuff like that. And on the subject of comedy, over to you, Graham. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about Star Trek comedy. I mean, the original series is remembered for, you know, sort of split infinitives and, and, and a general air of <laughs> seriousness. Yeah, yeah, there are comic episodes, one of my favourite being the Tribbles, and some very funny moments between the characters. I mean, just look at McCoy's character in this movie. Um, so why don't people remember that aspect of the series? And only send-ups like Galaxy Quest. Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's that's true. We, we, we've we come to see the seriousness. And I think part of that is the way Shatner sort of acts up as well, you know, in, in this sort of uh, mock serious tone, which... I think it was around the time of this movie, he did the Saturday Night Live sketch of, like, you know, you Star Trek fans, get a life. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really good question. There's almost like a, a mythology that's grown around Star Trek so that you can make a film like Galaxy Quest, which sends the whole thing up. But Star Trek itself is almost supposed to be serious. And if you look at the films that preceded this, you know, one, two, and three, there's very little humor in them. And it's just let loose here. But it seems to be forgotten about, and we just remember the serious aspect of it. So, yeah, that's all I can say on that, really. <laughs> I actually think that fans, the, the general public, I actually think they do remember the, co- the comedy. I think it's probably more that the people in charge who, who are in charge of the direction of things who, who don't remember it. Um, whenever you see, when I think if yeah. you were to ask anybody, Star Trek fan or non-Star Trek fan who remembered the original series, what were to name the most memorable episodes, most of them would mention the Tribble episode. It's the one that gets, you know, real, and that is, it is a very comedy-related uh, episode. And I think whenever you see the, you know, the people's, uh, you know, top 10 list of Star Trek episodes, the Tribble one is always in there. In, in fact, a, a few, uh, when it came to the 30th anniversary of um, Star Trek, um, the two series which were still on the air, DS9 and Voyager, to, to commemorate it, they, they did a special episode each where 
their crews will go back into and interact with crews of, of the past. And in the Deep Space Nine episode, we actually had the Deep Space Nine crew go through a time warp and basically end up in the, uh, the Tribbles episode. And we actually superimpose them into some of the scenes with the original cast. Yes, and I remember and that. So if, you, if you've ever watched one DS9 episode, if it's not your thing, watch that one if you like Star Trek. It's a really funny episode and it's done really well. Um, there's all little scenes like the um, the crew get into the barroom brawl and fight alongside, um, you know, uh, the, the the Enterprise crew against the Klingons. So it's a really good episode. But that to me shows that that sort of episode does actually sort of stick in people's minds. Uh, I think it's just maybe that the the, 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 uh, the powers that be are sort of a bit scared of comedy, possibly. I, I have to say, some of the um, mm. the humour that we remember from Star Trek, the original series, could be very cheesy and cringy i mean i i always used to whenever I used to end the episode with the fake laughter at the uh, at the credits i i always used to i always used to cringe at that uh, neil any comments um yeah i mean it's yeah i i remember watching it as a kid and it's the comedy it's the mccoy versus uh kirk and all that sort of stuff but it partly the fans that are so serious yes, I mean, yes. star wars is a very very funny a uh, series of uh, films of the, the the four five six, but the one two three are so serious. And then yeah. look at the the horror at the Last Jedi, which I thought was a very good film. But the way they'd taken away this, that, and the other, and I think it was laughing more at the seriousness that people took the being a Trekkie thing, which is I I I. I think that's more of it than uh, than than the actual programs. Um, I thought they were always very funny, and I thought JJ Abrams did a very good job getting that comedy out. It just took me back. I thought that one of all the films that we've watched, rewatched so far, that one was the one that took me back. I think with the humor and everything, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I always remember from the very first series was the the interaction between spock and mccoy that was always quite mm. humorous and funny yeah I, I actually think there's two sorts of uh, of what you would call trekkies there's the ones that go to conventions and dress up and have loads yes. and loads of fun yeah and, I, and take his fun. and then you've got the ones that basically sit on the keyboards and and basically get really angry about everything and hate. Yeah, them. I should I should have differentiated. I must admit, Darren, I did. Yeah. As I said it, I thought, hang on a minute, there are some people who think it's uh, hugely funny as well, and uh, and take a have a laugh at it as well. But yeah, apologies. But I think that goes for all fandoms. To be honest, I, th- I think mm, if you ever true, go to a, a, a sci-fi convention, there's lots of people there that are there having fun and a laugh, and then then you go on like the internet, and there's people there getting really, really upset when uh, there's a female Doctor Who or anything like that. You know, it's <laughs> you're talking about Jeff here. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question for you, Darren. Do you think generally comedy works in sci-fi? Yeah, I think like anything, when it's done really well, it, it does. I mean, the, the earliest film example I can think of is John Carpenter's Dark Star, that was, uh, you know, oh, brilliant, which was a, brilliant. You know, a, a, a great sort of satire on sort of space travel and, and everything. That, that's a really funny film. But also the, the one that really springs to mind is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, I'm talking now about the, the books and no, the radio yes. and the original TV series. You know, but sci-fi does lend itself to comedy if you've got the right person with the right sense of um, 
of sort of parody, but also sort of a tribute at the same time. So you're not actually sort of like, you know, attacking this mass, you know, making fun of it. If you're sort of working with the tropes of sci-fi and, and bringing in comedy in there, yeah, I think it does really work. And there's been some some great examples throughout the years. I mean, I mean, Mars Attacks, I think, was a really fun sci-fi movie. A, a TV series like Futurama and things like that. Um even though it didn't last very long, one 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 that got a real cult following was um, was Firefly, which if you ever saw that, mm-hmm. that was you know a, yes. a serious actual bit had a lot of comedy element and to it, and I think that is I, I have to say I think that is something that's probably missing from a lot of sci-fi today, particularly the, the Star Trek stuff. Because if you if you watch a TV series like Discovery and Picard, they're so stiff and and serious. You, you know, I, I think that, you know, they're, they're lacking any sort of lightheartedness or sort of joy about them. I mean, I've, I've heard it said, and I've got to admit, I've not actually seen this show, but the, the one show that people say is the most true to, to Star Trek isn't even a Star Trek show. It's a, it's a comedy show called The Orville, which is sort of part parody on, on yes. Star Trek. And and um, I'm going to have to check it out somewhere because people say that this is kind of, star, you know, this is like the most loving portrayal of Star Trek that isn't actually Star Trek but that you will get. So it's so I find that interesting. But yeah, I think comedy does, you know, add quite a lot to sci fi. Yeah. Uh and as a huge Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan, I'd I'd agree. I just loved the books uh, and uh, and the radio series before the books actually came out. Darren, I also want to see the Orville because I keep seeing people I I like online, recommend it and say, oh, it's really, really good. So I will have to get around to that. There's also um, a new animated series called something like The Lower Decks, or yeah, which is about, about the, 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 the sort of the crew of the Enterprise, but the ones you never see, they work on the lower decks. And, and that's meant to be quite good. I think that's just been greenlit for upstairs, a second. Upstairs, downstairs in space. Exactly. Yes, Downton Abbey. Have you done something jolly with your hair? Yeah, and those sort of <laughs> those sorts of of things in a futuristic setting. But yeah, I think there is an awful lot of comedy in sci-fi and Dark Star. Again, I remember uh, I saw that before something, some other film that I, I'd gone to see, and, and and Dark Star was completely unexpected. So I sat down and thought, oh, this is filler. And within five minutes, I was roaring with laughter. And it's had that really very sharp, witty, dark sort of humor that I just love. And it was just a fantastic film. And written by the same guy who went on to write Alien. Uh, Dan O'Brandon. Dan O'Brandon and John Carpenter. Yeah. And John Carpenter. Yeah. It, really good film. Bearing all that in mind, let's return to Star Trek Four Overall, I think there are two things you can take away from this film, the comedy and the environmental message. Let's deal with the comedy first. Did they get the balance right here, or does it all fall into pastiche? What I found interesting is the way it's bookended. The 23rd century stuff is not funny. There are no, the nearest they get to the jokes is painting the bounty onto the spaceship. That's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Other than that. It, it worked for Neil then, clearly. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's funny, yeah. But but the rest of it, there's nothing. It's all po face. The moment they go back in time, it's very funny. So you know, it just shows in the future, humor is banned. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, Neil, do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's true, actually. That, that it was a bit serious. I mean, he is being indicted and, um, you know, being forced to, uh, so that, that he, he was killing people, etc., and Kirk could lose everything, etc. So there is a bit of seriousness there. And I didn't think it was pastiche, no. I thought it worked for perfectly well. Perfectly well, the comedy is, is complements the actual... Uh, action in 20th century United States. I thought it's hilarious, but yeah. also worked very well with the more serious elements of um, Kirk being um, possibly stripped of everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I think that is de- deliberate when the when future stuff is serious and, you know, because the very first thing that happens when they get to the uh, to the 20th century is that scene in San Francisco where the... Um, the cloak ship lands and crushes the bin and basically scares the two bin men. And that's the very first thing that happens. And to me, that sets the whole tone. Everything that happens in the, um, it is like a, a totally different movie when we're in the past, but to me, that works. The, the comedy works because it is, as we always said, it's the fish out of water aspect. It works on two levels. You've got the people in the 23rd century trying to look at our culture and basically having a right sort of, you know, look at our culture, but also the fact that they were. Excuse older. me, Darren. Let's just ask a question about that landing, that funny moment. Do you think that was inspired by Terminator? Yeah, possibly. It was uh, also I, copied in Deadpool Two, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but Deadpool Two was made after this. Yes, I know. <laughs> it was copied. That's what copies mean. It's a good idea. Okay. Sorry, Darren. So yeah, but the second hour is because we were quite a lot older. It sort of worked when, for example, they were being like surprised by the fact that people were swearing everywhere and their reactions. So it, it wasn't just people from the future. It was also elderly people sort of trying to, you know, cope with this sort of really brash, um, uh, you know, angry society that it was in. And I think to write this, we must have found so many great things to do with the characters that, that would basically just there on the plate for them. So, for example, the fact that this is in the Cold War and you've got Chekhov is Russian, so it's obviously, let's have Chekhov be the one asking where the nuclear weapons are, because it's funny. And, you know, having Scotty, even more of a genius here than he is in the future, and basically sort of trying to get around the, the primitive technology and using a keyboard instead of just talking to the computer. Computer? Ah. Hello, computer. Just use the keyboard. The keyboard. How quaint. <laughs> and, and, and for me, probably the funniest thing in the whole thing is McCoy, McCoy being appalled at 20th century medicine. I mean, that scene in the hospital where, <laughs> yes. where he goes up to the old lady and he just says in this really grumpy manner, so go on, what's the matter with you then? She said that she's um, uh, kidney dialysis. And he goes, oh, for God's sake, this is like medieval times. And he gives her a pill. <laughs> and, then a, a, and then sort of walks away. And then like later in the scene, she's coming down the hospital. And she's just yelling, doctor gave me a pill. Now I've got a brand new kidney. It's it's hilarious. <laughs> you know, and it's just these <laughs> things that the character was able to do. We must have had so much fun writing this and thinking, oh, we can do this with this character, and you know, and uh, you know, you know, Nimoy can um, take out a um, you know a really annoying punk. Incidentally, that bit with uh, Nimoy on the bus that we've talked about, apparently that came from Nimoy because he was sat on the on the subway one time, and there was somebody being obnoxious with a ghetto blaster, and all I could think of was if Spock was here, he'd be able to put him to sleep. 
and that's how he <laughs> brilliant in. brilliant there's so much of the humor you can talk about and so many jokes and they work and that's what's great about it but let's move on from the comedy for a moment and talk about the environmental aspects of the film and that again also helped make it a a, a big hit i mean you've got this probe that basically comes across the vastness of space to talk to some fish what do you think of that environmental aspect we've pretty much resolved a lot of that problem now apart from the japanese who are still playing silly buggers but we have saved the whales so looking back from the 21st century it was it was a nice refresher course on how bad things were back in the the mid 80s interesting and also gratifying in that that's something we've pretty much solved you you make an interesting comparison there we talk about the japanese today and of course in in this film and um, we'll talk about villains later, but these were, I think, Norwegian, Icelandic Norwegian. I mean, they're all Aryan. So it's like reenacting World War II to try and kill off the whale. <laughs> yeah, that's a stretch. And that, that scene where the Klingon warbird appearing above the uh, fishing trawler was just fantastic. Great. I loved that bit. So, Darren, did these environmental aspects work for you? Yeah, I mean, they are very much of their time in, in the 80s. I mean, the whole the whole whale mm. thing was a very, you know, big thing there. And I think in, environmentalism at, at the time was a lot more, um, I, I, don't, I don't want to say naive, but it was a lot more simplistic and, and positive. It, you know, this was the, you know, the, the idea that things could be solved simply. I mean, this was the era of Band-Aid, for example. And I think nowadays it's um, you know protesting is a lot more political and confrontational, uh, but in the eighties it, it was a lot more felt optimistic, and it's not just the the, the environmentalism of sorry, I just want to challenge that. Sorry, Dan, I just want to challenge that because this is around the time that Greenpeace had people killed by the French. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, they tried to put bombs on board of uh, 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 the Rainbow Warrior, nineteen eighty five. Talking about like from the side of the protesters, what I'm trying to say is it was a it was a lot more simplistic. Nowadays, I think things are a lot. There's a lot more political edge when people go on protests and, and things and and going against corporations stuff. I think back then there was an, an idea that basically you could change things quite easily. But then it, it's not okay. just to do with, with the, the whales and things. It's um, you know the, the very first thing that they say when they get into the um, into orbit in, in the twentieth century is that there's uh, there's high levels of pollution. Um, they mention like nuclear power being being used, and you get the impression that all these things are basically are being banned in the future. But you've also got the references to the Cold War going on. There's a newspaper that shows that talks have been brought down. You've, you know, so it's not just the environmental; it's just the, the whole sort of attitude of the of the 20th century at that time. You know, I think that, that the whole thing is is a sly commentary on, on sort of of what we were like, at, at, you know, at, at that period when we were watching this film, what we were like as a people. It's interesting what you're saying is that because of the time and place and setting, this is almost a time capsule of a movie. Yeah, def- definitely. I think if if you're to make it today, I think I think it would be a very very different different film. It probably it, you know it probably would sort of if you had the same sort of approach now, it probably would seem maybe sort of like you know, naive even. But at that time in the eighties, it, it fitted it perfectly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Neil, your thoughts on the environmental aspect? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I 
agree with Darren. It was um, the 80s. Um, we weren't really thinking about that. It was more about boom and bust, wasn't it? All the markets being opened and um, the deregulation um, and such like. It, it wasn't about, um, oh, well, we might be actually destroying the planet. So, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting. And, of course, they didn't have the communication as well, so computers and such like. So they wouldn't have been able to. I mean, something like this actually would have had quite a big effect, I think. Yeah, you just know what I just want to add, just to show the sort of the attitudes of the the time is that um, that video of the uh, of the whale trade that is being shown in in the on the tour that you see they actually got that from a film which was actually um, promoting the whale it wasn't like a um, a protest against the uh, the whale trade this was actually a, a propaganda film but I think it was uh, by Norwegian authorities showing how great and how efficient the whale trade was. So all those scenes of the whales being sort of like cut open and slaughtered, slaughtered and everything, the makers of that little segment, that was actually meant to be positive. That was meant to be sure how, like, you know, how, what a great trade the, the whale trade for. And I think that's really interesting that they basically found that and then turned that uh, around and showed it as basically how disgusting the whale trade was. Mm. That's an interesting point because essentially they stopped the film for four minutes to talk about the whale trade, mm. and yet it's a powerful piece that you take away. Yeah. And you know, ultimately, this is all about the environment. The theme is embedded within it, and I think there are two aspects to this within the structure of the film. It's about the, quite literally you destroy a species today and you might need it tomorrow. You know, n- never mind about whales. You might there might be a plant, for example, that would help in fighting cancer but we could destroy that plant and we would lose that forever so that whole thing of destroying species is important but also if you take the theme when the the probe turns up in the beginning we don't understand what it's saying and it's all about communication communication breakdowns leads to so many problems which also impact on the environment so these themes are really key the way they're embedded within the script uh, Darren, would you agree with that? And is there anything you want to add to it? Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, but, but to me, to me, the p- communication aspect is 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 the key thing because in this film at the start, all the Star uh, Starfleet's weapons and advanced technology they're all made redundant. They all fail, and at the end of it, what saves them is an actual conversation. It's commu- communicating. It's it's appeasement and. You know, when they go back and there's a whole thing about the Cold War going on and everything, and I think that you know that is a very strong parallel there. But there's another thing that I, I think is really interesting when it comes to the communication, and that's in um, that's regards with Spock, because he actually takes the time to communicate with the whales to ask for their permission to actually get them yeah. on board to go on this mission. Because when they get there, Kirk's um, whole plan is. We'll find the whales, we'll beam them up, we'll take them to our sentry, and then everything will be all right. But Spock makes the, the point that these aren't ours to do with as we will. Out of all the characters, he's the one who has the most compassion in this point. And, and this actually comes up again in, in a film in a way to in the series. He's actually the compassionate one, and he basically takes the stance that the, you know they can't just take for granted these species, these, these are living creatures and he takes the time to reach out to them and i think that's a really important element that sort of that passes over the the, the rest of the crew and the fact that spock spock's culture is all on logic 
but that doesn't mean that it's not without humanity or compassion. I think that's a really interesting um, you know, development in this film. What did you mean when you said all that stuff back at the Institute about extinction? I meant that... He meant what you said on the tour, that if things keep going the way they are, the humpbacks will disappear forever. Oh, that's not what he said, farm boy. Admiral, if we were to assume those whales are ours to do with as we pleased, we would be as guilty as those who caused, past tense, their extinction. I have a photographic memory. I see words. Are you sure it isn't time for a colorful metaphor? Yeah, he has that conversation with his father at the end, which is quite telling as well. Yeah, All right. I agree. It's good. Uh, I mean, there is a part of me that watched this when I looked back at this, and I thought, oh, this is just a, a mid-'80s hippie agenda type thing, you know, who oh, will save the whales, man, and all of this sort of thing. But it, it is... It is an important lesson, save the whales. <laughs> save the Welsh. Did enjoy the the piece about yeah they can't communicate clearly, and and one side is doing all the talking and nobody's listening. Good point, Darren. I hadn't considered that before. One of the things I really like about this film is there's a mystery at the start. You don't know where this probe has come from. You don't even know what it's saying to the whales. It's never explained. There's aspects of two thousand and one, and indeed, you could almost say this is a leftover plot device from Vija in the motion picture. Graham, what did you think of that aspect of the film, that you set a mystery up and you don't tell the audience how to resolve it? Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I mean, I always like those things where, you know, it's a, it's a black box and, and you can't see into it and you don't know what's happening and, and things are not fully explained. I do like that because it leaves a lot to the imagination then. So I really enjoy those sort of things. But I did actually think, yeah, this is a bit like V'ger and this, the start of, of that. In a, and it sort of absolutely maps on to Star Trek, the motion picture. But it then takes a, a different approach. And I, I must admit that them being able to work out that it's a message for the whales was a wee bit of a, a MacGuffin there. But it worked and it got them. And they didn't hang about. They just said, oh, look, it's whale song. Right, let's go back to the 20th century and get the, get the whales. So they, they dealt with it quickly. And then you get into the comedy and you forget that. So, yeah, it was okay. It was a bit cheesy. Darren, did this sense of an unresolved mystery work for you? Um, yeah, it did. Um, it's one of those things that you didn't need to explain. And I think that one of the things that it, it creates a theme of is um, that the overriding sense you should get when it comes to environmental issues in this is there's something bigger than us but as, as a species. And, and this really sort of, um, even in the 23rd century, we couldn't comprehend what the probe was and what the conversation between the whale and the probe was or anything like that because it's there are things bigger than us you know not everything in this in this world or in this universe is something that we basically will ever comprehend and i think that was a really great message there the fact that the um the whale talks to the probe and the probe just goes on and we never see it again but there's a there's a bigger thing out there than just the, the little squabbles of the federation even and I think that's great. But one, one thing just that's, that's interesting is apparently one of the fights that Nimoy had with the studio was they were concerned that people wouldn't get what was going on with, with the whales talk and with, with the probe. And they actually wanted to bring in um, subtitles. They, they wanted to have subtitles so you could see what the probe was saying and what the uh, the whales were saying. And, and Nimoy really had to fight. That was one of the battles that Nimoy had. Because um, some of the subtitles that they came up with was uh, literally 
when the probe first appears, it's basically saying, where are you? Where did you go? And all this. I remember wanted to bring in an actual conversation between the whale and the probe. And I think that would have been absolutely, I think it would have been awful anyway, but it would have taken that element about as a species, you know, we still need to be humble because we, you know, we are not the center of everything. But it's interesting that the uh, the studio basically it didn't trust even back then it didn't trust audiences enough to um, to basically be able to piece the um, the story together. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Neil, your thoughts on the mystery and it not being fully resolved? To set the film up with the trailer being a comedy moment, and then start the film with with something that's unknown, a mystery, and a clear danger. I thought that worked very well. Yeah, you you seeing it and you're thinking, oh, it's going to be all jolly and everything. And actually, um, the whole world's about to end. Now, for me, and I think the mystery is really good. And the fact you don't know where the probe comes from, you don't know what it's saying, you don't know where it's going. And I like all of that. I think that's, that's really good. But it's Star Trek, isn't it? And they've got to mess about. So while the film, in terms of the film, it's excellent. I have no complaints at all. They had to go write a book sequel called Probe that fully explains what it is, where it come from, and what it's about. Leave it, guys. You don't need to do that. No, you Some don't. mysteries are best left unsolved. Oh, right, that's off my chest, so I'm happy to continue. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, I'm glad you got something off your chest. Yeah, I'm glad this is a therapy session for you, Jeff. <laughs> Let's pick up another subject. So Leonard Nimoy, one of the things he wanted was to have no villains in the movie which is quite interesting. In fact, there are villains, but they're only briefly shown, and they're the whalers. Hmm. Uh, it's a fascinatingly anti-authoritarian film. He mocks the army, and he mocks 20th century medicine. Hmm. Am I being unfair here, and did that work for you, Neil? Yeah, actually it did. Yes, they, they don't really. They park in the middle of a park um, where there's probably a sign saying, keep off the grass. Uh, yeah, I thought it did. I, I thought it really... That. Really good. Uh, yeah, that's it. The bloody hell. They'd have been out with the anti-protesters on COVID, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. So for- what about you, Darren? Did that approach of no villains but being anti-authoritarian work for you? Yeah, yeah, it did. It, 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 this film didn't need a villain. You know, the the, the whole point of no. this was basically a, a peaceful resolution. If you have a villain, then you've got to... Um, you got to smack him around and, and beat him. Um, you know, I, you know, and the, the anti-authoritarian thing, yeah, it's, it's, it's there. But I think most films are anti-authoritarian on some level. I mean, most comedies are sort of, you know, particularly 80s ones, you have the trope of the, uh, the rebels and the snobs or the authority films like Caddyshack, Stripe, uh, Animal House. It's what most um, good diver story is based on on some level it's you know if you if you have a pro authoritarian film you're going along the i guess the fascist right wing uh, <laughs> road so so yeah i think it's just you know it's just like you know, the most most films are anti authoritarian but yeah the, the villain you didn't need a villain. It wasn't that sort of story. I think if you had put in like a like a sort of villain who was trying to get in the Enterprise's way or whatever, I, th- I think it would have basically, you know, spoiled the movie, to be honest. Do you know, you make a really good point there that I've not made a connection on, but you take something like Stripes, which is quite subversive and definitely anti-authoritarian, and compare it to this, and I think you'll see a lot of similarities. Graham? 
Well, I, th- I think it was a, a st- it's a Star Trek film like no other Star Trek film, and it's a rescue mission, really. So they throw away a lot of the paraphernalia they have in other Star Trek movies. So there is no villain. There are no, you know, they're they're outlaws in this, and and they're not in a in a Federation vessel. So all of those trappings are thrown away. So they don't really need a villain. And of course, we're focusing in on the team themselves and the rescue mission, and how they work together, and how they save the whales. So all of that, rest of that stuff doesn't need to be there. And, you know, it's a couple of hours long, and they've got lots and lots of stuff to do, so let's just go along for the ride. So I I enjoyed that fact. I thought it was great. So, Darren, um, what do you think of the performances of these uh, now ageing actors as they're shown in a modern-day setting? Uh, I, I really like them. I think they seem the most comfortable in these roles doing them than, than they have in any other film. And I think that's, I get the impression that they had a lot of uh, leeway in, in what their characters would, would, would do. I, ju- I just think they've sort of, you know, they've got the, the characteristics and they actually, you know, they, they do a little parody of themselves. You know, they, there's stuff that would crop, crop up in um, one of these um, uh, stand-up comedians or sat in their that life would make fun of them and, and do sort of reenactments of them. I think they probably took some of those on, on board and, and you know went even further with them. I mean, I mean Chekhov is basically doing the Russian accent even more intense than he's ever done before. Bork is 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 doing the whole sort of you know the logic and, and not being un- able to understand other people's um, like hu- human phrases and stuff. McCoy seems even um, grumpier. Yeah, I, I and and Shatner seems is is the most Kirk in this than I think in, in any other <laughs> film. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I I think they you never know what's going on behind the scenes, but to me they they seem to be having a blast. In yes, this film. they did, and, didn't they? They genuinely enjoying themselves, aren't they? The plot catered to to them getting on a bit. You know, the, the, the most action that they're doing this is basically running away from people and stuff. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of thing where Kurt gets to swim and, and be a little bit of a hero. But, but generally speaking, I think the, um, you know, the, the dynamic between them all, all works so well. Kirk and Spock, when they're in that car with, with Catherine Hicks, and she makes a comment that she's got a tyre iron in reach, just like a joke. <laughs> and the look they give each other, it, it's wonderful. It's like they're sort of bemused but slightly scared and not really know what she's talking about look. And uh, Nimoy keeps looking at her and she keeps like frowning at him and this sort of little like sort of quite scared perturbed expression he keeps doing. The whole thing just feels so re- relaxed and, and normal. And and like I say, in, if you listen to the, the commentary track on the film, you know, Nemo says he gave them a lot of leeway in what the, was said. You know, he didn't, but sometimes we weren't working so much with a script just for points that we needed to get over. I mean, apparently the, uh, the, the scene with them, um, Scotty and, uh, and, and Bones at the, uh, at the, at the science lab, you know, a, a lot of that they were just sort of like, you know, coming up with stuff to say on the fly. So yeah, I, I think it works. I think it works great. I think this is the, like I said, the most comfortable that you, you, you see them in any of the films. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think I agree with you, Graham. What do you think? Um, the, you've just picked up a point there. I was going to say on the on the acting, Darren. The, that scene where Scotty and McCoy are in the aluminium plant or factory or whatever it is that that i thought that was great because scotty gives a great performance because you know he's acting and he's overacting acting as somebody who's meant to be overacting and acting in it so it's quite a a meta 
sort of a little scene there and it just gets funnier and funnier and i do love the picking up the mouse and saying computer you know it's just one of those wonderful little moments and he plays that scene completely straight faced you know and it it's the funnier because of it and i do think that in this film they were allowed to uh, and deliberately by nimoy uh, they were allowed to just relax into the roles and just have fun with them. And it really shows in the end mm. product. They are enjoying themselves, and that comes across in bucket loads on the screen. And you can see it, and you just go with it because it's so, it's so charming, really. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it is. Funny. Yeah. Jeff? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think what you see is they're so relaxed, they're having fun, they're allowed to improvise, and they slip back into the characterizations as you would have seen them in the old TV series. So the banter's back, and as it's relaxed, it feels natural. I do like uh, DeForest Kelly as McCoy when he comes up with that line, but it's what, well, nobody's perfect. The line he was to repeat, yes. oddly enough, in Star Trek V, and of oh, course, right. some like it hot. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but that general nature of them all, you know, every one of the main characters, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, all are great. Staying with you, um, George Takai and uh, Nichelle Nichols, uh, Sulu and Uhura had very little to do um, or had less to do. And obviously Catherine Hicks had a huge amount. Is that correct? If so, why? No, that's racist, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, um yeah, the two members of the cast who don't really have a lot to do. What I like about the, the construction when they're in 1987 is there's mini plots going on, there's mini vignettes, and everybody goes off and does their own thing. Mm. But all uh, George Takai, as Sulu does, is look in a helicopter. And the next thing you do is you see him flying it. Uh, Nikel Nichols, uh, she uh, sort of runs around with Chekhov but then leaves him there and goes back. I, I think, I know what they're doing. They're playing the Russian and the Russian-America Cold War thing, and I understand that. But I would have been very interested to see black person captured on that ship then and uh, the, the racist element, but they just decided not to go with that. But they give a lot to Catherine Hicks. And fair credit to Catherine Hicks. She is good. She is funny. Yeah. Uh, she didn't know much about Star Trek. But she has one horrible moment in this film. And I don't know if you guys picked up on this. It's the moment where she's supposed to run full speed into the spaceship. <laughs> it is, without doubt, cringingly embarrassing. My wife could have done it better than It was her. like it was made out of sponge, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It just casually <laughs> dropped back. <laughs> so that was awful. But generally, I thought her performance was good. But I would have liked to have seen the other two have much more to do. Because, okay, I jokingly said it was it, it, it was racist. Uh, and I'm sure some woke people will see it as that. But I think they just weren't given enough to do, which is quite sad. It's an interesting and a sub-question on that. And Do you think that because he was Russian, because of the Cold War, etc., they don't think they would have sold the film so well if he'd had more to do? No, so actually, let's go to um, – let's just ask the question of uh, Darren, actually. Catherine Higgs, she needed to have a big role because – you needed somebody who was like represented in the 1980s. So mm. you needed someone to be the guy, but you also needed someone who they could play off with, with her sort of attitude and everything. So, so you, you needed someone to, to clash with. You also needed somebody who would basically not believe them and basically find the whole thing ridiculous 
that these people have come from the future. So so she did need to have a, a really big role. I, I don't think it's a shame that George Takaya and Nichelle Nichols didn't get more to do because I, and they did sort of try. Everyone seemed to have their own little sort of missions and, and them two um, didn't get as much screen screen time. And it's a shame because if you ever see them in interviews or in question and answers or – they have so much personality about them. I mean, I mean, Nichelle mm. Nichols as well. She's got, a few, you know, she's got so much moxie. She's a singer, you know, and, and I think that, you know, she gets, at least she gets more to do here than she did in Star Trek 3, when goes off and gets things ready for their arrival. I would have liked to have seen them get their talents more involved. One thing that there was actually a, a, supposed to be a scene with George Takai where, in the streets of San Francisco, he would actually come across his great-great-grandfather as a child. Um, but the, uh, the shooting was uh, in, on the streets of San Francisco, which was a complicated scene because they did it in daylight and everyday things was going on around them. They ran out of time, but also apparently the, uh, the little kid that they got to play the role, when he got to the set, he started getting nervous and scared and started crying. So in the end, they had to jump the, the whole scene. So that might have been... Like, you know, a nice little scene of sort of George DeKai sort of meeting a, a relative. It's a shame that we didn't see more of them. Dr. McCoy, you, Mr. Scott, and Commander Sulu will convert us a whale tank. Oh, joy. While Captain Spock and I attempt to trace these whale songs to their source. I'll have bearing and distance for you, sir. I want you all to be very careful. This is terra incognita. Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. Staying with performances, and one of the things, I mean, there's a huge amount of Star Trek fans there, and and as Darren was saying earlier about Eddie Murphy, and it was clear that Murphy was a fan of Star Trek, but actors turned up in small roles that could have got much bigger parts at the time just to be on Star Trek. For me, Michael Berriman, who, of course, is from The Hills Have Eyes, John Shook, one of the great comic stars of the 1970s, they stood out for me, just seeing them in just a minute role, really. What stood out for you? Jane Wielden was in The Go-Go's, and she had a, a hit single over here with a rush hour. She's, um, she can be seen on one of the, um, uh, the view screens. She's got this, um, when, whenever things are going on in Star Trek Command, she's, uh, she's the woman who's got this like, really weird, wonky hairstyle. Uh, but apparently she was a Star Trek. She just wanted to be in it just as, a, you know, as, a, as an extra Mark Lennard is, is back as Sarah. This is actually the last time we see him in the films. He um, he came back in Next Generation for an episode, uh, but this was the last time we saw him in the films. Um, the, the actress who plays Spock's mother, Jane Wyatt, she was actually played the same character back in the original series. Majel Barrett, um, who played Nurse Chapel, she, she's in it very briefly. She They filmed a lot more scenes of her, and she got really, really annoyed when she found that she'd been cut down to basically just like a like a little like two second uh, scene I, I think she was she was actually married to Jean Roddenberry she actually came back in uh, this is last time you saw her as Nurse Chapel but she came back in Next Generation as um, Luxwana Troy who is basically the worst character in all of Star Trek in my opinion uh, <laughs> she, she's, she's absolutely if you ever watch The Next Generation whenever she turns up everybody rolls their eyes she, you know, no one likes to <laughs> she's only on there because she's um, basically you know was uh, tight with Jean Roddenberry there's also another actress from the original series and Grace Lee Whitney who was in the original series as a character called Janice Rand um, and she got cut because of um, reasons shall we say 
um, she <laughs> makes a brief appearance. And also Robin Curtis, um, it's the last time we see her as Savvy. An, an interesting thing about her is that um, they actually did away with a subplot that would have revealed early on that she, the reason why she stayed behind on Vulcan is because she was meant to be pregnant with Spock's child. If you remember in Star Trek Three, they actually she and Spock basically had a moment when he had when he was suffering from Pomfar. And originally the idea was going to be that she was pregnant. So yeah, so mm. so that, they're the cameos that um, stuck out for me i think you've covered them all I <laughs> yeah that, I, was, I was just i was gonna i was gonna say i can't think of any more that's, that's really good so as i said so, moving on as darren's covered everything there let's go te- let's go technical graham loves it when i talk technical. Oh, God. Um, now i was gonna say when i was watching this how awful i thought a lot of the special effects were except when I read up on this and I'm putting these questions together, I found out the whales were mostly models, and it fooled me completely. So, Graham, Mr. Technical, what did you think of the effects? I thought the effects were fine, apart from the flying around the sun, which was a bit janky. Again, after the first one, when they had a complete disaster with the special effects, they picked it up quite considerably in two when they gave it to Industrial Light and Magic. And I think the special effects just continued to improve into this one. And it all worked. And I didn't know there were models until I read it. And I thought, well, yeah, I thought that was real. I thought they'd taken some sort of standard, you know, uh, Friends of the Earth type whale pictures and and put them into the, the film. But no, I thought it was all very well done. Apart from the one where they were dropping the transparent aluminium into the ship and Scotty was stood up in the middle of midair in a park in the centre of San Francisco. <laughs> with, with a mat line around him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that was a bit, uh, okay, right, fine. There's no problems with the special effects on this one. Okay. Neil, what did you think the special effects? Um, I, I, do you know, I I did notice that it was a, a, a model whale. Um, there were a couple of times where I thought, oh, that's not right. Um, and the and Scotty on the top of the thing, yeah, that didn't look good. Didn't affect my enjoy, enjoyment of the film as a whole. So I, I'm, I'm not too worried about them. Darren, special effects. I am so relieved that all you lot thought were real whales as well because – I just assumed that they'd gone down to some sort of sea world place and, and just filmed the whales there. I never even thought twice about them being real. In fact, apparently there was an environmental group that complained about the use of the whales in the film and that said that the um, the cameras got too close to the whales and everything, so that they were fooled as well. When it comes to special effects, I, this is something I've said all the time. I, I'm fine with special effects not being like, say, a Star Wars quality, providing we're doing something interesting with them. And, you know, to, to me, the special effects were fine. I like the, the shot where the um, bird of play um, flies around the Golden Gate bridge towards the end. You know, I, I, I love the special effects. I think I think they're fine. They're, they're colourful. They're, you know, they're, they're not state-of-the-art with what you would get today. But I, I think the, for, for the actual style of them and what they do with them, I think, I think they're, they're screaming really well. But the one weird thing is, in this film is, the sort of dream sequence that they do uh, when we're travelling back through time and there's like this really weird clay. Oh, that is weird. Yeah, yeah, it's odd and it's just sort of a bit... The only, the only thing I can say about them is it's they kind of to do something to show that time travel was a little bit weird. 
if you listen to the dialogue that's going on in there, it's dialogue that comes up in the film later. So I'm guessing the idea is that they're basically passing through the events that they're going, they, they, they've yet to uh, to do, you know, and the whole sort of, you know, the thing with the will and everything. So so I think there's, there's, a, there's a reason for it. It's just, it just feels really weird, especially when we've got, like, the, the clay figure that falls up to earth and into the ocean. It's just, it's probably the, the weirdest moment in the film. Yeah. Now, we have spoken about how this film is so different from the ones that preceded it. And one of the other ways it was different is in music. You had Jerry Goldsmith for the first, the next two were James Horner, and they set a style, you know, all of, all of its own. But, you know, it was pretty consistent with what we've come to expect. And then you bring in Leonard Rosenman, who does a very different type of score. So Leonard Rosenman brought in an, an almost jazzy uh, and and light score, but it's so different to anything else that's ever been done for a Star Trek movie. Darren, what did you think of the score? I, I liked it. It's it's different because it, it was a very different film, so so it needed to be. And particularly, we, we talk about how different the film is when it's in the past as towards the the, the present, and it's very buoyant and playful, like the, for the comedy scenes, especially like you know the scene when they uh, are running through the the hospital. It's sort of like you know a very sort of, you know, glib, sort of happy, glowy uh, tune. But, yeah, it works really well. And I think the ending is is it's, it's kind of like this like, really optimistic, uplifting, majestic score that, you know, when you see the whales going off in, in the distance, it's, you know, you get the sense that something really spiritual almost has happened, something really, really positive. And it's not it's not like beating the enemy. It's not a triumphant score in that sense. It's, it's basically a sort of an optimistic, a, a, a better world type music. And, and I think it works really well for me. What did you so, think, Jeff? I really like the score. When I first heard the score, when the film came out, I really didn't like it. I just, and I'm not a great fan of Rosenman's work anyway. I think the best thing he ever did was Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Going back to it now, you know, watching it as part of the series that we're going through and seeing how this film is so different in so many ways, it was the right choice. Mm. So, yeah, I've grown to love it, I think is my answer to that. Let's come towards the end of this. It is a polarizing film amongst Star Trek fans. You know, there's a lot of fat people that liked aspects of the first three, that serious tone, didn't like the comedy and refer to it as the one with the whales. Why do you think that is, Darren? I think it's, it's, it's one of those cases that we talk about how it's so accessible to a wider audience. And I think you will get, because of that, you will get hardcore fans who resent that who resent if you do something different and take it in a different direction. With any fandom, you get a lot of gatekeeping of people who think, this is for us, we don't want outsiders in there. They, you know, they resent that. I, I do wonder if what the film reaction would have been if we had social media back in the 80s. Back, back then, the only sort of feedback you would see is if you were to, um, like, See letters in a um, in a in a magazine or something, or, or, or you know, you give those very little things to make your points across. I, I do think that it would have probably got a lot of criticism 
from certain elements of, of the fandom who are sort of the minority but are allowed minority as we go. So I, I think that that just it is the reason, you know, if you open something up to a wider audience, you will get people, the ones who have been there for a long time and like it a certain way will resent that, you know, and it's just a, a sad you know, in, in diamond, like you, you get you get that a lot with sort of you know you know to, today for whether it be video games, comics, sci-fi, and anything that opens it up and brings in thing automatically brings a, a sadly a, a backlash. This was a, a unique moment for Star Trek, in the terms that they'd had this film come out, and it did this huge business all around the world. It was a big success. They completed the three smaller budget films that they wanted. The success of this meant they were going to go for something bigger budget next time. However, there was also a TV series they had in the offing, something called Star Trek The Next Generation. What's the story behind all of this, Dan? There was always talk of doing a, a Star Trek series at some point, but the, um, the, the studios and everything, they were always a favourite if they had a, um, a TV show at the same time as a film, but the two would be an overexposure. And that it would basically, you know, the two things would cancel each other out somewhat. So we didn't want to do that. But what happened in this film is that the, um, in the negotiations for it, Shatner and Nimoy got a massive amount of money, a lot more than, than the other Star Treks. And because of that, the, um, the studios decided that now was the time to basically start planning for the future. If Shatner and Nimoy basically got to a stage when their demands were basically just so high that they, they didn't want to do go with them but they still wanted to keep star trek alive so that's basically why they at this point greenlit star trek the next generation and i think as well they realized that the crew were not going to be around forever and so this this is kind of the um the, the starting point of where of how star trek really started to expand beyond the original crew by the time the next film came out star trek the next generation was on the air a quick question for you on this, then. Was Gene Roddenberry involved in this Star Trek The Next Generation? Originally, yeah, he was. By this time in, in the film, as we've said on previous things, he's, he basically just had a token advisory role on these films. And it was an advisory role that basically everyone just ignored him. So he would have his complaints or whatever, because he had actually no power at all. Next Generation he did actually have a lot to do with the concept and with the original um, uh, series. So he was, you know, may maybe he, that was sort of a distraction for him. But for some reason, they basically went with a lot of what Gene Roddenberry did with the other series. And to be honest, a, a lot of the problems that went around with Next Generation, because it wasn't a plain sailing TV series, a lot of the problems w did come along with, what Roddenberry had set out and his stubborn ways of what Star Trek should be. Star Trek really, to me, really, really sort of expanded and got creatively interesting once he'd passed away and they were free of his sort of influence so they could go in directions that, you know, a show like Deep Space Nine, I doubt would have basically been able to do the things on there it did had Roddenberry had any inch of power. They, they did actually end up basically kicking Roddenberry to one side even in Next Generation. No, I fully agree. Yeah, I mean, Deep Space Nine went very militaristic in the last uh, few uh, seasons of it, and I'm 
that would have been in defiance of what Gene Roddenberry had set up. What Darren just said would be my words entirely. Star Trek became far more creative once he was out of the way. Yes, he was the initial person who set it off and he gave it a good push to start. But by the time his his time was passing, he'd become a boat anchor basically on the show and was dragging it backwards. So I agree with that entirely. His edict was that none of the human characters could have conflict, that they'd basically reached a level where they were past that. And that used to kill any creativity that the writers could do on Next Generation. That, that's why you got so many Technobabble episodes, particularly in the early series, is because they couldn't have any sort of conflicts amongst the Federation people. You know, it, it all had to be sort of like science or aliens. And a lot of his ideas basically really held back you know, the, the development and, and any interesting things of uh, what you could do with Star Trek. I mean, the first two series of the uh, Next Generation were quite a struggle, you know, to get through some of them. Although I'm a fan and I did watch them all, you know, some of them I thought, this is not really going anywhere. It certainly all picked up later on. Okay, well, we'll be covering all of that in future episodes because it'll run concurrent with some of the films. But let's just wrap this up now on your thoughts on this film is there anything you think was missed from it and are you still standing by after this discussion your positive tone at the beginning neil yeah uh it was surprisingly good as i i, I don't remember watching it well I, I vaguely remember um and i thought it was excellent i just thought um i didn't think there was much missing i thought it was a star trek like i uh i i used to watch when I was a kid. I think the, the only thing that you could say that you'd want more is, is more of George Dekai and, and Michelle Nichols, really, which mm, we covered. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I think everything else, it, it got it perfectly. And I think it's – back then, you, you were never sure if – you never took for granted if you were going to get more films because sagas didn't go on for that long. You know, Even the original Star Wars, you know, it, it, was sort of, it was only three films originally. So you never took the granted that you were going to get more. And this one felt like it would have been a really good place to, to end it because it's, it's. I mean, you talk about it being a trilogy. To, to me, this one ends the, the, four, the first four movies because the ongoing theme of this was Kirk not being happy with being an admiral and everyone telling him that and him struggling. And in this one, the, the finale is that Kirk gets demoted from admiral back to being the captain. So it's his journey, you know, the, the whole Voyage Home sounds like a really bland title, but, but it's not because it's everyone getting back to where they were supposed to be and where they've sort of detoured from. And the final scene when they, when they see the Enterprise, and, or the new Enterprise as it is, and they, you know, and they say, we're, you know, we're finally home. To me, it's not just from that film. It's the, the entire arc of the first four films. It's, you know, it's Kirk's journey back to being the role that he always should have had all along. And I think, it, it, you know, it's and it ends on an optimistic form. So if it had never been another Star Trek movie, it, I'm, I'm glad they made more, don't get me wrong. But I think it was, a, you know, a, a fitting at that point sort of goodbye to them for now. I, I think it, um, it's a fun film. It's uh, it's one that is a fan favourite. It's a public favourite. And, yeah, I, I don't think they got a lot wrong, to be honest. Interesting, uh, the levels of that title, The Voyage Home, there, that was quite good. I loved it. Um, I must admit, I thought it was a great, light, 
piece and it brought all the characters together and I just thought it worked so well. It's funny, it's light, it doesn't take itself too seriously. At the end, Kirk gets the best punishment ever for all the bad things he's done. He gets given the Enterprise. Yeah, just exactly what I wanted. Thank you. So it is this, and I do uh, like Darren's point about the voyage home. The voyage home always confused me when I was watching it in the cinema. I was thinking, but this isn't their home. What do they mean, the voyage home? This is not where they're going. And then, of course, at the end, it pays off when they arrive back on the Enterprise and mm. And now they can set off on more uh, adventures. And it was setting it up nicely. And I remember at the time thinking, is this the end or isn't it? It's a wee bit too convenient. They all end up back on the Enterprise. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. Well, for me, I thought it was really good. It's fun. As I said, it's light in tone compared to everything else. If you're just a passing acquaintance of Star Trek, you're going to love it. The only missed opportunity, I would recast the Catherine Hicks part with a South Wales Valley girl. So you then got the double the double metaphor of Wales. I but, see. Uh, Wales looking it, after Wales. Exactly. Do you see that? Yeah. See how good that was? Anyway, that's our take on Star Trek The Voyage Home. Next time, we meet God in Star Trek The Final Frontier. And no, that doesn't mean the director. <laughs> so set phases to stun, guys, whatever that means. And let's play out with some of Leonard Rosenman's score. <laughs> 